Uh, good morning. It has been a week, has it not? Oh my. Um, before we even get started, I want to thank everybody that was involved with the fair stand. Um, you guys were incredible. You put in so much work. You're sleep deprived. It was hot, like really hot a couple of the days. And um, it, it was excellent, honestly. I, I uh, From everything I saw, everyone was having a, a wonderful time other than those that got really, really tired and even they were still being sweethearts. Um, I just can't say enough about how much uh, people seem to appreciate that stand. I get more comments over what kind of pie people had than just about anything else. And I still think they're wrong because almost no one talks about the raisin cream. So I know that they're wrong because that is the superior pie. However, that Kentucky Derby is incredibly popular, but enough about pie. Um, but I do want to thank you guys. Honestly, it is an incredible thing just being a positive presence in a community. And the fact that we have the opportunity to do that, I propose and I know I've been harping on this lately because there's so much potential when we interact with the community to actually be salt and light. One of those ingredients actually does go in pie, but we have the, we have the potential to actually be salt and light in our community. And I think we should view it as a ministry of the church and we should view it as it's something that we get to do. But, and I know that one night Albert was doing the dishes, I looked over, I'm like, Albert's getting tired. He didn't complain, though. And I know he wasn't alone. That fair stand was tired by the end of the week. But I really appreciate all the work you put in this week. I, I And those behind the scenes as well. Judy, how many pies you make this week? Excellent. She has no clue. I didn't eat all of them, which tells me I'm having personal growth. Or less growth. Either way. Let's get to something that is more substantial, though. But uh, I was really blessed by you guys this week. Thank you. Um, this week, we're actually going to take on the entirety of Acts 7. It's enormous. It's actually a speech, mostly. I'm going to read it because I love it. Not just because it's scripture, but I love what happens in this account of Stephen being brought before the Sanhedrin. And again, uh, just in case you didn't know or didn't hear the last several times I harp on the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin is an enormous group of Jewish leaders, and they love God. I truly believe they all love God, but they're made up of Sadducees who believe only in the first five books of the, of the Bible. They only believe in the Torah as being scripture, and the Pharisees who believe in the entire Tanakh, so the whole Old Testament the wisdom writings and all of it, they're looking for a Messiah. They believe in resurrection from the dead, right? So about half of them are uh, believing in the whole Old Testament. The other half of them only believe in the Torah, but they're very sincere people and they're trying to protect what they have. Good morning, Jared. Sorry, just saw you, buddy. It's good to see you. That was not in the Bible, by the way. I didn't even write it in. I just was excited to see my buddy back there. All right. Anyway, um, I'm going to be reading in Acts 7. And it's kind of long. I'm going to admit it. And I'm not sorry. 
I could paraphrase it, but why? Uh, feel free to read along. I am reading from the NIV because that's the last Bible I was gifted. That's really how I've chosen my translations lately. Uh, my brother sent me a New King James. I preached all the way through it. He sent me an NIV. I'm preaching through it. I'm not going to preach from the message, though I do like it. But we're going to keep to not paraphrases uh, from up here. But anyway, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And remember, he was uh, accused of speaking blasphemy against Moses and against God. And by Moses, I believe they meant the books of Moses being the Torah, the laws of God. So they asked him, is this true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even... A enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a land not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated, but he will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that land and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and, the, and circumcised him on the eighth day after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs are, of course, who they named the tribes of Israel after. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph uh, sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamer at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king whom Joseph meant nothing, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. Then he was placed outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He, did, he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard the groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them through out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey them. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed what, what, what their own hands had made and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel. You have taken up the ta tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the idols you have made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations God drove out before them, it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? 
or will where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Okay. Notice he has been. I'm just going to take a break there and talk, and I'll jump right back into it. I know that was a copious amount of scripture, just a lot. And some of you probably started thinking about your checkbooks or what you have to do today, wonder what your dog's up to, all of that. No good. That's the answer. Your dog is up to no good. I apologize, but it's true. Don't even ask about the cat. Anyway, just a lot of scripture, but it's important scripture. And what Stephen's doing here is they have accused him of blaspheming against Moses and against God. So he goes ahead and he tells them exactly what he thinks and what he says. He gives them a history of the Israelite people. He goes all the way back and gives them a history of these are our people. They already know this. These are the Jewish leaders. They know this story. So he's going to go ahead and tell them his orthodoxy. He is telling them exactly what he believes, which is exactly what they believe. This is where it gets different. He took time to establish that he is, in fact, an orthodox, God-fearing Jewish man. They can't argue with him. He clearly is not blaspheming against Moses. He just told you what they believe about Moses, not just what he believes. This is what his rabbi or whoever taught him taught him. This is where it changes in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. This is not a loving statement. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. Always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but not obeyed it. I love this. Not just because it's rebellious and that tickles my fancy having grown up in the 90s. Um, anyway, some of you know. It tickles my fancy because he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. There is a difference. There is a difference between being willing to argue your point and laying down your life for what's right. And he's about to demonstrate this. He could have said, now I know you mean well. I know you mean well, but this whole Jesus thing, you probably made a mistake, guys. Like, didn't you look at the prophets? Like, I know you mean well. He didn't do that. What he did was he said, you stiff-necked people. Was there ever a prophet you didn't kill? You're just like your fathers. Do you think they're going to change their minds and embrace him at this point? Is that what Stephen thinks, that they're going to just change their mind and embrace him, and then all of society is going to hold hands and sing kumbaya? No, that isn't what's going to happen. 
He knows that's not what's going to happen. They actually have a custom for what's going to happen. In the same way you know how to play pickup basketball outside of a schoolhouse, they know how to pull people outside of the city limits and bludgeon them to death with rocks. He knows what's going to happen. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I've only seen children do this. Watch kindergartners sometime. I know not all of you have the luxury to work in an elementary school, but watch small children when they get mad. They bare their teeth at each other. They'll growl and hiss and everything else. He made a group full of God-fearing people so angry they gnashed their teeth at him. That's a lot. That's a lot of mad. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices, very mature. They all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. I've been informed the way stonings work is every person with a grievance against someone for a sin that they've been, well, basically convicted of at this point, every person with a genuine grievance picks up a stone. A stone. Right? If one person's trying to stone you, it's going to hurt, but you'll be fine, typically. It takes a group of people to stone somebody because everybody's going to throw one stone. So there is 72 people with a grievance. This is overkill. Because I think you might be able to effectively stone somebody with tennis balls if there's 72 of them. This is overkill. But notice who's there watching the coats. A young man named Saul. Does Saul have a personal grievance against Stephen? He's watching the coats. He didn't pick up a rock. But it does say in the next line, um, actually it doesn't in this uh, translation. Hmm. But in some translations it says that Paul, or Saul, sorry, he's not Paul yet, approved of what was going on. So whereas he may not have been throwing a rock, he approved of what they were doing. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Oh, here it is in, in NIV. And Saul approved of their killing him. So it was still in there. Sorry about that. And Saul approved of their killing him. So there's something really important that I think as Christians we can take from this. And I've said it before and I'll say it again just because I, I learned this lesson late in life. Some of you have known it your whole life. What you're willing to kill for is irrelevant. It does not matter. 
I mean, don't kill, that matters. But I mean, what you're willing to fight for is of no importance. What you're willing to die for is of extreme importance. Stephen is the first martyr of the Christian church. He was the first person who willingly laid down his life for his faith. What's interesting about it is he isn't being belligerent until verse 51, if you want to call that belligerence. He is reaffirming, I believe what you believe. This is proper. What you said here about Moses, what I've been taught here about Moses and Abraham and Jacob. Yes, we're in cahoots. We believe the same thing. When he turns on them is how they're practicing their religion. If you want to call it that, the fact that they are unwilling to recognize the Messiah when he is in front of them, even though they've been told for hundreds of years that he's coming, they're unwilling to recognize him. The fact that the religious order has killed all of the prophets all the way along who have given these messages from God because people don't want to hear from God. They want to hear from themselves and put a God tag on it. When God speaks, they don't like it. Oftentimes. I heard someone say recently something that I found to be absolutely true and completely tragic. People are quick to say they love Jesus, yet they despise his character. If you think about it, that's incredibly profound. There are many people that are quick to say, I love Jesus. But if you start talking about anything Jesus actually taught, lived, or believed, they hate it. You cannot love someone and hate their character. You cannot appreciate things about them. You could wish things, some things could change. You can resign yourself not to involve yourself in that part of someone's life. You cannot love someone and hate their character. Jesus told us to change the way we think and act. All of us are supposed to change the way we think and act. Not to be more like my father. My father's a godly man. But if I'm trying to be my father, I miss the point. Because that's not what my father wanted for me. For me. It's not what my father wants for me. My father wants me to try to be like Christ. That's what makes him a godly man is the fact that he realizes if I aim to be him, my, my aim is way too low. We should all be trying to be as Christ. When we see things that are wrong, are we willing to take the hit? Are we willing to take the stones for standing up for what you believe? And I'm not saying attacking people for what you believe. Not trying to rally a big party and attack people. Most of the time when you disagree with someone, you can just say, no, I don't agree. And that's, that's it. You don't have to catch stones to the face over it. Are we willing to do that? There's a great many people I respect and love who are my brothers that I don't agree with. I bring up Nate all the time because he can take it. 
Nate and I disagree on just about everything except Jesus, and we love each other. We're, we're buddies, you know? Am I going to see him in heaven? You bet I am. We're going to both have giant forehead-slapping moments when we realize what we were wrong about. Scott and Dave have both been in a, in a missional discipleship group with Nate and I. We talk endlessly in circles, just arguing with each other about different stuff. And it's a blast for us. Hopefully they're not. They're just like, yeah, we're in therapy over it now. But there's a difference between letting things slide or just understanding we disagree. We disagree. But if someone is willing, if you have that conviction, and if someone were willing to hurt you over it, if it's a real conviction, you need to be willing to take it. You need to be willing to take the ramifications. I'm not a doomsdayer for the most part. I study history and I love history and it's exciting. I do know at some point it's going to get really bad. And I can tell that even if you have a different version or not version, a different interpretation of the book of Revelation, you can look at history being cyclical and see, yeah, things are going to get kind of bad for the religious folk because it happens over and over and over again throughout history. It also happens in the book of Revelation. So again, I have no disagreement in either party on that one. It's uncomfortable sometimes to be a Christian. That's where we're at on the persecution scale. They measure heat of peppers by Scoville units, right? You got a jalapeno, it's spicy. It's not impressing anybody that eats spicy food, right? Then you have that ghost pepper. There's probably stuff that they've come up with past that. Mike's grandma had those little candies that she had them plant that the bugs wouldn't eat because it was too hot. If we were judging our persecution by Scoville units, I'm not sure we're, we're very high on that scale. It's just occasionally uncomfortable to be a Christian in our society. Occasionally uncomfortable. We're still at the part in society where you can say, no, I don't agree. And you can take a couple negative comments about it. If you're not willing to take a couple negative comments over something you have a true conviction about, there's no way you're going to let somebody stone you to death. If you're not willing to be insulted for it, you're not willing to die for it. You can have all the romantic ideas in your head you want. There's something in our culture where we have this glorious idea about civil wars, and it's because of the way we teach the civil war, I think. But there is a lot of Christians. There are a lot of Christians. Sometimes I listen to my audio and I cringe over the way I talk because I know better I teach English. Sorry. There are a lot of Christians and a lot of churches on this Sunday morning who truly love Jesus, who somehow think that all of this is going to come down to some glorious armed rebellion of God's righteous. And those people are deluded. And I'm not trying to offend you if you feel that way. That's not going to happen. Because the second you start killing the infidels, you become one. 
no one is going to come at you and challenge you in the town square to, to a quick draw contest over your faith. That is not how souls are won. Study history. You'll see it. It's called the Spanish Inquisition. It's called the Crusades. That is a nightmare. That's the devil laughing at us. Don't buy in. However you feel about your call to protect your family, that's between you and God and no one else. But what I'm talking about is there is no holy war coming. Don't buy it. The only holy war I'll advocate for is you getting on your knees and you praying about this garbage. There is no violence coming that is going to purify our world of evil. Don't buy it. If someone shows up ready to kill you, what are you willing to die for? Are you going to stand there like Stephen and be like, okay. There's something you're going to need to hear on my way out, though. And I may be the only one that reads that account this way. He could have left that room alive, I'm positive. But he wasn't willing to lie. He wasn't willing to retract what he knew was true. And instead, he committed himself to say, okay, well, you're going to hear this then. And something I think is absolutely beautiful. And I, I truly don't believe that in my generation this will come to this. But I've been wrong a lot in life. If you've ever heard my testimony, you know I've been wrong a lot. So, um not putting any eggs in this basket, but if it ever came time to where someone wanted to kill me when I was behaving righteously, not when I was being a jerk, my mouth gets me into trouble sometimes, but when I'm behaving righteously, if someone was going to take my life for it, I want to make sure that I'm in a place where I can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Christ modeled that for us first. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then Stephen modeled it again. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand what they're doing. You don't even have to wait until you're dying to say those words. Why would we ever act, expect Rome to act like anything less than Rome? The culture around us does not have what you have. Why would you ever expect non-Christians to behave like they have a relationship with the Holy One? It's logic at this point. Why would you ever expect someone who's lost to behave as though they're not? These people, as aggressive as they may be, are in a pitiable position. A lot of them are angry because anger is all they have. Sometimes you don't even need to prove you're right. I would actually say most of the time you don't need to prove you're right. If you find yourself in an intellectual debate, trying to prove yourself correct, You've probably already lost. And you might be right, but you've already upset the person. There's only, I've gotten to do it once. 41 years, I've gotten to have a, a, 
intellectual debate about spiritual matters that I won. And I didn't win. The person I was arguing with won because I was able to show them something in scripture and they understood it. That's happened once. You know how many times I've lost a friend? More than once. Because I don't know. You know how many times I had a great argument backed up with scripture and I turned that person off from religion in general for years? Unfortunately, more than once. Live your faith. Speak your faith. Don't be a jerk. If it's about you, you're wrong anyway. It's about Jesus and it's about the person you're talking to. If you truly believe they're lost, and I do so many times, people I love so much, I believe sometimes they're just lost. And it can still become about me. You do it too. We do it. Is it about Jesus? Is it about that person? If you love that person, then it's about that person. It needs to be about that person because if it's about you, you're wrong already. I cringe a little inside when I see salvation reports. If you ever spend time with missionaries, they're cool and sometimes they're powerful, but I cringe a little bit. We had 3,000 people make a commitment to Jesus today. Like That's great. Praise God. When the report only becomes that, we had 5,000 people make a commitment to Jesus. We had three people make a commitment to Jesus. We had, it tells us one thing. You got people to admit they needed Jesus. That is step one. Now what? How many of those people got discipled? How many of those people found love within their communities, their churches? How many of those people are walking in faith? How many of those people are disciples that make disciples? How many of them truly understand Jesus or were they confused and they thought it was a voodoo incantation that gave them an eternal life? Because that's not what the sinner's prayer is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be magic. It's faith. Sinner's prayer is beautiful. It's how I led my daughter to Christ. It's biblically based it's the faith of the person saying it that has any power whatsoever. If you're just saying words because someone told you it gets you into heaven, you don't know what you're doing. You're, you're practicing voodoo. Not on purpose. Salvation reports should be celebrated. I'm speaking out against the wrong thing, maybe, but if that's all you see is a number, if people go down to Costa Rica and 5,000 people come to Jesus during a, a big event, let's celebrate that. I know that happens. My brother's involved in the big feed. It's super cool. They have these massive revivals and a lot of people come to faith. But what I'm far more interested in is what happens next. Everyone is born with a hole in their heart where they know they need God whether they're willing to admit it. Exposing that you need Jesus, that's step one. How do we fill that hole? And are we willing to die for it? 
are we willing to say that if my death were willing, we're able to bring about salvation for others? How quickly would I run into it? <laughs> would I have to be drug into that position? Would I stand there like Polycarp, one of the coolest guys in history? Not to mention his name sounds like many fish. But Polycarp, I think he was 84, 86 years old, and they put him in the middle of an arena and were going to have him torn to death by beasts. That was how they were going to martyr Polycarp. But one of the last things he said to somebody was, play the man, as if he was going into a play. He was going out to be killed for the entertainment of others. He decided to play the man. He went out there like a tough guy, didn't recant a blessed thing, and he was killed viciously. His death impacted people so much, we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. One of the neatest guys in history, and I don't know how he lived. But if his death is any reflection on how he lived, and I do know how he lived. And what a cool guy. As an understatement. What an amazing human being who was trying to be like Jesus. So should I be trying to be like Polycarp? No, go to the source. I want to be like Jesus. I see how close to possible that is when I look at Stephen and when I look at Polycarp and when I look at the thousands of people that have been recorded that have died for their faith. Can we have conviction? And can we have a conviction that is so personal to us that we're willing to lay down everything to live our convictions? For the glory of God, not for our own glory, not to be right, but for the glory of God. That is my challenge. That is our challenge. Anyhow, if you can do so without pain, would you please stand with me?